Welcome everybody to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we hit the week's hottest legal topics. This week we have quite a lot going on and what we're choosing to focus on is Congress. How is this legal, you ask? It is all legal, all government related. Part of it is actually in the Constitution. Part of it is not in the Constitution. And what we're going to do today is a dive into how Congress actually works, what is happening with the speaker's race, why there's a speaker's race, the ins and outs of it, presidential succession, and we're also going to hit a little bit on Israel because clearly that is also happening. It's not technically our legal um, happening of the, the week as in terms of the U.S., but it is a global conflict happening, and we do want to touch on it on how it might relate or actually does relate to our own congressional issues and judiciary issues. So, With that said, stay tuned with us. We're going to do some preliminary matters because it is the weekly wine. We're going to introduce ourselves, but stay tuned and work with us through the weekly wine. I'm Virginia Tarani. I am the owner of The Law Unscripted, which hosts the Legal Weekly Wine, as well as a full-time practicing attorney in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. And I am joined today by Dr. John Vile. Dr. Vile, I am so glad to have you. Um, you. <laughs> you have been an instrumental host on this program, and I'm very excited to have you, especially today with the events. Um, you are a, a government scholar. You are a Constitution scholar, amending process scholar, um, founding father scholar, and we even hit this last summer on the Israeli judicial review and issues. So I think this is a perfect, everything has been a segue leading up to this week about the congressional issues, about the speaker's race, about how that may impact other parts of our own government. And thank you for the, God, thank you for all of your own service, all of these years for studying, for researching, for your academic scholarship and for sharing that with us today. Okay, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's absolutely do it. Um, So the weekly wine, we've got to have wine. It's happy hour. We definitely need happy hour. Grab your own glass of your favorite wine, your favorite beverage. Um, Follow Dr. Vile's lead with his water um, or mine with the wine. And I want to say another special shout out. I tell you, our marketing team is fantastic. Um, SMB team is our marketing team. Um, They're especially geared towards um, lawyers and lawyer marketing. And they're, they're really well, doing really well in the country. They are one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. And they were kind enough, our marketing um, team member Peyton was kind enough to send a, a warming gift for us. Last week, we tasted one of the bottles of wine. And this week, we're going to do another. She knows me. So we've got another Cabernet. Um, and the Cabernet we are tasting today is Teleria Vineyards Cabernet. Um, this one is from 2020. And it's Sonoma Valley we're going to give this a try. Thank you, Peyton. Thank you, SMB, for all of your continued support with our programs and with our marketing efforts. We're going to try that toast to everything and prayers for everyone in Israel and Gaza. Cheers, everyone.
Oh, they know me so well. It's delightful. It's really delightful. It is similar in, um, in smoothness to the one that we did last week. Um, Vintner's Path, I think it was called, or Vintner something. Um, here I can't remember, but it's upstairs. And it's very smooth. It's not as full-bodied, but it's a beautiful texture of berry mixtures and maybe some apple in there. It's delightful. Dad, I'm sorry that you're uh, missing out on the wine. <laughs> and your preference for water. Okay, so let's get started. Thanks for everybody for um, waiting through the, the initial part where do you think that we should begin so that we have the best overarching understanding of what is happening now this week? So let's start at the beginning. Um, we have three branches of government. They're often described as co-equal branches, but that's not quite true. Mm. Uh, the first article to be described in the Constitution is Article 1 deals with Congress then the presidency, then the judiciary. And most people believe that that, that choice was fairly conscious. It was, mm. you know, making laws. It's important to enforce the laws and interpret the laws. But if you don't have laws to, to begin with, uh, you don't have anything. So as we discuss, Congress is divided into two parts. That's called bicameralism. House of Representatives is closest to the people, both because there are more of them, 435, and because they have shorter terms. Mm. two-year terms as opposed to four years for the president, six years for senators. And so with the two-year leash, presumably members of the House are more attuned and more cognizant of what public opinion is than, than the other branch would be. So if you have if you have the House basically without a leader, essentially there's not much they can get done. And remember, Congress primary power is what we call the power of the purse, the power to appropriate, you know, appropriate money, spend money and the like. Which has and, been the central issue as to why McCarthy's even trying to be out or was ousted is, right. is the Since, government uh, shut down looming because they can't get a budget done. Right. Ke Kevin McCarthy, who was the Speaker of the House, uh, it actually took him, usually the there are few votes in Congress that are completely partisan. And one of them is the vote to decide on House uh, on, on the leadership. So typically, all Democrats vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. All Republicans vote for the Republican nominee. And the independent often they'll align with, with one or the other. So... What happened is when McCarthy ran for Speaker of the House after the last presidential and congressional election, um, it took 15 different votes because, you know, America is divided, but so is the Republican Party. Now, the Republican right. Party, I believe, I believe it's fair to say that the most liberal Republican is still more conservative than the most conservative Democrat in Congress. Um, but still, uh, there are some who, frankly, there's some in Congress who seem quite much more interested in getting their names in the newspapers and being on CNN or Fox News or whatever than they are in governing. And so one of the issues, which has, you know, been a perpetual issue, particularly in the, uh, the last 50 years or so, 
has been rising governmental debts. Mm. And both sides, frankly, are you can apportion blame on both sides. Right. Democrats typically like to spend more money than Republicans. Republicans typically like to test uh, tax less than Democrats. And neither side really wants to budge on it. And oh. frankly, neither side is terribly consistent. Uh, we racked up very high debts uh, when President Trump, a Republican, was president just as we've continued to do with President Biden, who is a Democrat. And now, now we have, we also have the Ukraine war and how yeah, much right. we're Which actually a, aiding. Right. Uh, to multi, multi-billion dollars. And so what happened with McCarthy is because it took 15 votes, he made a lot of side compromises with Republicans. And one of them was if you know, if we're discontent, one member can bring a motion to have a vote as to whether to, whether we're going to continue. And that and was new. That had never been a part of Congress. That's my understanding that 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 had that was an it was a rule basically designed to to placate the more conservative, you know, populist. I don't I don't know uh, as as a. I don't quite know how to how to describe it in in a fair fashion, but those who are generally considered the more radical in the in the Republican Party said, "If we're going to vote for you, we want this guarantee," and and they got it. Uh, Gates of uh, Florida uh, introduced it. McCarthy was voted out, and now the problem is, you know, who are we, who who's going to replace him now? There are some indications that were he to be were he to be reelected, he would take the job. But right now, but what happened initially, at least, is Steve Scalise of uh, Louisiana, Jim Jordan of Ohio, uh, both put their hats in the ring. Uh, they had a couple conference meetings behind closed doors. Uh, there was a vote by 113 to 99 to select uh, Scalise. Now, why are we looking at those numbers? If we have over 400 in the House of Representatives, why are we only looking at the lower numbers? We're looking right now not at the final vote for speaker. We're we're looking at the Republican nomination for speaker. And Republicans control just, you know, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, six to ten majority of the 435. So the Republicans caucus, they voted, uh, they selected uh, Scalise uh, over Jordan. Uh, Jordan, by the way, one of the things that Jordan made pretty clear was that he would not support further aid to Ukraine. Scalise doesn't seem quite as, uh, I think he does favor aid to to Ukraine. Uh, But in any event, the problem is we've already had, I believe you have a six- I believe it's a six-vote margin of Democrats, or I'm sorry, Republicans over Democrats. So if as many as six or more Republicans continue to vote, as some of them have said they're going to, for Jim Jordan, or if some of them were to say, well, I favor trying to get McCarthy back, there it's not clear that you're going to be able to get a, a Republican majority. Uh, and again... You know, some people blame the Democrats because when when the vote was taken on Jordan, 
that actually was up before the whole house. And some people thought, oh. well, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Kevin McCarthy. Some people thought, well, maybe the some of some of the Democrats will abstain, or maybe they'll even cast their vote for McCarthy rather than take a chance that you would get somebody even more radical than he is. Uh, well, that me, didn't happen. Let uh, me pause but again, this you, real quick. Pardon? Let me pause this yeah. real quick to to go back to some of the basics. Um, mm -hmm. with, with all of this infighting and going to the Constitution that it's so vague and so minimalistic for this speaker, why is it yes. so important that we have a speaker and what duties do they have that are that important that we, we've got to get this taken care of and chaos seems to be reigning at the moment? Well, basically it would be like if you had a meeting without a chairman or a president. You, okay. you need somebody in control. You know, somebody's going to recognize who's going to speak, what pieces of legislation are going to be introduced, that sort of thing. Would so it be like the prime minister for England who would be in charge of, of well, their parliament? The of course, right. The, the difference is in, in England, your prime minister is always a member of the majority party or coalition. And because we have what's known as divided government right now, we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, uh, but a Republican House of Representatives. And so, but yes, I mean, essentially, you you, you can't do, now we do have, uh, and I love the name, Patrick McHenry. Uh, and he's from Virginia. Um, so fitting. So, you know, you can't get much better than that, right? <laughs> Your last name is McHenry, and you say, who can I think of that would be famous? Let's try Patrick. Patrick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but apparently he's not, you know, people know he's just sort of a filler there. Uh, nobody's going to want to bargain, take his leadership when they're waiting to find out, you know, it, it's almost like a period between, you know, a president, new president has been elected, and we're sort of waiting to see what that president is going to do when 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 they come in. Okay. So basically, you have a headless House of Representatives right now, and it, you know, in some ways, it could hardly come at a worse time. Now, here's where we can maybe make a little bit of parallel, yeah. and I hope the parallel doesn't pan out to, but to Israel. Yes. Now. <laughs> Given the nature of Hamas and the Palestinian issues, it may be that no matter who the prime minister was, that you would have had this revolt by Hamas, uh, this attack on Israel. But some people believe that it has been emboldened by the fact that the Israeli government has been so split over the issue that we discussed in, in, in an earlier uh, segment, namely uh, Netanyahu wants to rein in uh, the, the just, judiciary. It, it's fascinating. In Israel, they don't have a written constitution, but judges have been exercising the power uh, to void laws that they consider to be violative of due process. And Netanyahu, like some Americans when it comes to judicial review, thinks, well, that's too much power for the court. So he's been trying to rein that power in. And so for the past, you know, nine months or so, there have been massive demonstrations in the street. Uh, and some people, you know, it may be that Hamas looked at that and said, maybe if we attack, the country really won't be that united. Um, maybe that'll give us an advantage. Mm -hmm. 
And some people say, you know, maybe, maybe because of all these, this internal dissension, maybe somebody did take their eye off the ball. You know, mm-hmm. why were they not able to see this coming? Why, why was it such it a surprise? Right. And why did it take so long once it happened to get military in there to take care of these kibbutzes and, you know, various other places that were being overrun? So the question is, you know, we live in a world right now, I mean, Ukraine desperately needs more aid. Right. Uh, Israel, we apparently have some stockpiles that we're giving them for their Iron Dome defenses, Mm -hmm. uh, but they could use more. Uh, There's always the threat that China could attack Taiwan. Right. Uh, they've certainly been very aggressive in the uh, the South China Sea and, and, and that area of the world. And is it possible that our adversaries will look and say, well, you know, America's bigger than we are, but given the current divisions within the country, maybe maybe they will not be able to strike back. Now, right. this if this if this was a calculation, and I don't know if this were the calculation, I guess, uh, and I don't know that it was, it probably has backfired in Israel. You attack a country as viciously and violently as they have been attacked, uh, and people are no longer going to worry about you know what political party you're in. And in fact, right. Netanyahu has created a, a coalition sort of wartime government. Uh, to to address this, and I, I think I think the Israelite I, I think the Israelis are largely uh, unified right now. Now, whether that will continue if they you know have a physical invasion of Gaza and casualties mount, I don't know. But you know, it doesn't. Part of what's happening, uh, uh, the other is sort of a propaganda thing. You know, when when I was in my youth. I would hear reports that Russia and China would always point to the United States and they would say, they're a racist country. They still have segregation. Oh, wow. uh, they're having riots in the street. This shows that democracy doesn't work. And, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are doing much the same today. They're saying, right. you know, do you do you? Don't you want a strong man? Don't you want somebody who can come in and do things? Or do you want to have a messy system like that in the United States? So it doesn't it doesn't particularly help our credibility uh, or our status in the world when we go, you know, for a long time. Now, that being said, you know, we we, we have to send in our in our country. That's that's basic to it. But it, we're, we're in a, a fairly vulnerable position right now. No, that that's interesting and a, and a very fairly scary synopsis and and thought, but I think it's it's fair because it does seem through what's happened. I mean, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, this this vote that McCarthy agreed to when did this this deal with the devil essentially that the vote could be cast to remove him for the first time in our history. The fact that it was played, the fact that it worked and he was removed, does seem to have given way to a much more vulnerable position for us, to a much more uh, divisive. And this, by the way, is not mandated by the Constitution. It's not a constitutional flaw. Now, there is a constitutional flaw, in my judgment. Well, not directly. 
But this is the legal side, and and that's what I want to hit is where is what in the Constitution could help us, would help us, or is even hurting us and should be reviewed and revisited. Well, of course, one of the things that's often said about the the framers is they it's it's not quite true. They didn't anticipate political parties. They did anticipate factions, um, but it didn't take long for political parties to develop. Part of this is a development from that. Um, One of the what I was going to say, I think, is a flaw right now is, God forbid, that the president and vice president should die. According to a law passed in, I had it down in my notes here, Presidential Succession Act of 1947. That was not a part uh, of the original Constitution, which I think a original, lot of people believe. adopted by a Congress that was. Mm-hmm. So, and, and essentially, president, if he dies or is disabled, is succeeded by the vice president. If the vice president dies or is disabled, he or she is uh, succeeded by the Speaker of the House. And then, by the way, after that, it's the Speaker pro tem. Uh, and I bet nobody in the entire audience, maybe somebody does, and I wrote this right, Patty Murray, a representative from or a senator from Washington State is the current Senate pro tem. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you many imagine? people know that. No, I mean, you, you know, how many people knew even Speaker of the House, but to get to Senate pro tem, what, it, what even is what it? I think the, <laughs> here's what I think the flaw is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you should assure, I think what the, the rule probably should be is that it should be the leading member of the House of Representatives of the president's party. Oh, because right now, if we, you know, if both were to pass, you would end up with somebody from a different party, which, you know, clearly could give somebody an incentive, uh, a bit very bad incentive. Sure. Uh, the reason, and then, by the way, it goes to the cabinet officers uh, in order of their creation. Mm-hmm. And some of your viewers were know, will know that typically, and I believe there's been a novel about this, typically when the State of the Union address is given, you know, the speaker... Uh, sits behind the president. The Senate pro tem would typically be in the audience. And so there's always at least one cabinet officer who is designated not to be there in case that body were destroyed during the State of the Union address. But I, I think it would be better. Now, the reason it's the speaker is if you just go with cabinet officers, cabinet officers are not elected. Now, sometimes you'll have a cabinet officer who had been a former governor or senator, but that's there's no requirement. And they're not and, elected to the positions of the cabinet. No, that's right. They're, they're appointed and may never have held elective office in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it used to be that, that you would go with members of the cabinet first and then the speaker and the Senate pro tem. They reversed it so that you would at least have someone who, and in a sense, the speaker's elected twice, right? First from his, di- his or her district, and then by by their colleagues. So, you know, typically a, a speaker is a fairly competent individual. 
but it, it it does raise an anomaly. Now, to to bring in a, I always like to bring in a book that I've read over the last week or two, um, book by Jay Cost, who's associated with Grove City College, called Democracy or Republic, and he's made he's made a suggestion that a number of other people, including George Will, uh, and some other prominent people, have made that it's probably time to increase the number of members of the House of Representatives. I believe it was about 1911 that Congress decided, you know, for, for the longest time, initially the Constitution specified there would be no more than one representative for each 40,000 people. And on the last day of the Constitutional Convention, some people said that's not enough. Nobody can represent, you know, 40,000 people is too much for one person to represent. So they dropped it down to 30,000. Okay. So then the House gradually, well, sometimes very quickly grew until it became 435. And they said, let's put a cap on it. But that means today that the average representative is representing 700 and some thousand people. And that's um, where we get into the larger states, like California, that, New York. Well, right. Um, so, so it's somewhat right. It somewhat diminishes the power of the larger states because each state is guaranteed at least one representative. But if you were, if you had a larger number of people in the House, if you go back to famous. Uh, Federalist Number 10, which was written in defense of the Constitution by James Madison. Madison argued that one way to cure factions, which is basically what we have in Congress right now, is to increase their numbers. Mm. And he he reasoned that the larger number of factions you had, the less possibility there would be that you could have a majority faction. Okay. Um, and so if we had, let's say, a thousand uh, members of the House rather than 435. And it would also, uh, then arguably, you would have more interest there, uh, possibly lead to greater compromise. Uh, and a side effect, which some would like and some would not, I would happen to like it, uh, would be that since the Electoral College is based on the total number of senators and representatives, you would give larger weight to population in the electoral vote count than you currently do. So you'd and have basically a, a higher reliance on the popular vote. That's well on population, which mm -hmm. is related to it. Now there, the, the other thing about the electoral college is that it all but two states use a winner take all system. That's not mandated in the constitution, but the beauty of either changing that or adding to the people number in Congress is that neither would require a constitutional amendment. Oh, uh, then now, if it doesn't require an amendment, how would it be done? Well, Congress, I mean, Congress set the cap on the House of Representatives, so they could unset the cap. Now, how many people, how many viewers, if you said, hey, instead of paying for, you know, 535, I'm counting the senators' salaries, maybe we ought to double that, 
some people might say, you know, we got we have four hundred and thirty-five too many already. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just well, well, in my my mind, it, it's like, well, why do we have the House at all? Let's just get rid of them and do the Senate. That way, we have two, you know, two per per state anyway. It seems representative. They're still elected, but it's not. Re- I mean, they, they're the the Senate is the most, and, and I I don't say this in a negative fashion, sure. but simply as a, a category. The Senate is the most unrepresentative body probably in in our government in terms of popular vote. Rhode sure. Island, Wyoming get the same votes as California, New York, and Texas. Okay. Uh, so if you were going to, if if we would ever, and, and if you look at, look at our British antecedents, the reason we have a bicameral Congress is basically because we were familiar with the British Parliament, which mm. was bicameral. And the progression in most bicameral legislatures, particularly at the national level, has been to increase the power of what they would have their House of Commons, their lower house, which represents according more well, it's not they use the proportional system. But nonetheless, if we were to eliminate or diminish a branch, it would probably be the Senate rather than the House. Now, and this leads to another legal portion of there's been a lot of calls for stacking of the Supreme Court. And it seems to me in going back to the Constitution, what are the mandates of how many, how many? No. Yeah. Uh, Constitution doesn't specify how many justices there are. But but I, I would argue that these are two radically different things. Okay. Uh, the the Supreme Court, of course, is appointed. So, if if one side stat, you know, if if Democrats add five seats, you can be pretty sure when Republicans come along, they're going to add five more. And the next thing you know, we're going to have a we're going to have a Supreme Court the size of the House of Representatives. Sure. I I, I understand the sentiment behind stacking the court, uh, but I don't I I don't support it. By contrast, there'd be uh, there could be some advantages to increasing the number of the house, and you know one of the one of the things that we possibilities we haven't discussed is you know could enough Republicans jump ship and say we are just so divided we can't come to any conclusion we're going to vote for Jeffries we're going to vote for the Democratic minority leader. Oh, fascinating! Uh, so even step outside of their own party. Right, and again, remember what I said though. Almost always, this is a purely partisan vote, and and that's why, you know, it's sort of easy to criticize the Democrats. Well, why didn't they step in and save Kevin McCarthy? And it's like, well, you know, they're they're not there to take care of the the problems of the Republican Party. On the other hand, they are there to take care of the problems of the American people. Mm. And it could come a time where people would say, we are, you know, we. I don't think it's going to happen. But I think it's more likely that Kevin McCarthy would be renominated and 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 become speaker than Jeffries. But it is a possibility. And, and we have know, to have for the speaker after. Okay, so we get through the caucuses, right? Then we go into well, the House to have right. the actual vote, and then the Senate still gets a vote. Um, I don't think so. Not for the House. Okay. Uh, in other words, each House of Representatives shall choose its speaker and other officers. Okay. And I think there's a similar 
uh, provision for the Senate. So as far as I know, it's only internal to the House. But what what seems to be happening, and this is going to be broadcast on Friday, right? And so and, I don't know. Yeah, what, either late Thursday night or, or Friday of the week. But, so I don't know what will happen, you know, between Thursday, Thursday noonish and, and then. But right now, what seems to be happening is Republicans are saying and Scalise is sort of leading. I don't want the vote yet. I haven't been able to line up enough people to assure that we will have, you know, it, all it takes is six or seven uh, people who, who uh, jump ship. And he's trying to make sh- and And I mean, this is wise. There's no use having to vote if you know you're not going to win it <laughs> unless you are just trying to push it on to, to, you know, let us think about other options here. And in the meantime, with this happening, where do we stand on the government shutdown and how would this impact that timing? Right. My understanding is when the predicate for the vote on Jordan was when Jordan cobbled together an agreement for, I believe it was 45 days. Is that Uh, Jordan or McCarthy? What did I say? Jordan. Yeah, McCarthy. Okay. Yeah. So McCarthy said, you know, we're going to get a compromise between Democrats and Republicans, which will keep the government running for 45 days. So, right. If nobody is in place in 45 days, then that means we would have a government shutdown. And again, part of this is, and, and I, there are some people who say, well, it's about time. Government's spending too much money. This is the only way to get a leash on it if it takes a shutdown to bring it to attention so much. But that assumes that the rest of the world is going to stand by uh, and we're not going to have any immediate crises in the <laughs> in the near term. Right. And we, we seem to live in as dangerous a world today as we have in the last you know 20 or 30 years. Right. Oh, goodness. So do you, do you have any suggestions uh, that we could pass on to Congress uh, to the representatives or even to our viewers as to, well, to our thoughts uh, and our actions going from here. I, I think the, the main thing in, in terms of civic education is we, we need to remember when we elect people to Congress or any place, the loudest and the person who gets the most attention is not necessarily the person who is most committed to their country. Mm. or who gets the most done. And we have, you know, to use an old term that used to be used at the, uh, the Senate, we have a lot of show horses and not nearly as many workforces. And ultimately, you know, I, I believe in political parties. I believe in a two-party system. But party parties should come below country. Mm. Um, and there could be a time where the most important thing that some Republicans could do is say, if we can't come to a consensus, let's choose a Democratic leader. Or, you know, there's certainly a time when Republicans ought to say, you know, I can't get I can't get 90 percent of what I want. So I'm going to quit or I'm not going to vote for anybody Or they could say, you know, 55 percent is better than nothing. And and again, you know, we, we need to remember we have a house that leans slightly Republican and a Senate that leans slightly Democratic. And most measures in our government require 
both houses to come to an agreement on an identical bill. Right. So it's nice to say, you know, well, we're just not going to cooperate. We're not going to give any money until we build a wall with, with Mexico. We're not going to give any money to Ukraine. We're mm-hmm. not going to do, you know, we'll vote for Israel, but we won't vote for Ukraine. We'll vote for Mexico, but we won't vote for Israel. Well, everybody cannot have what they want. By its very nature, Congress is a collective body and compromise is necessary. Right. Now, you know, whether I were elected to Congress and could keep that kind of attitude, I don't know. I think it would drive me crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I do think we, the, the people that are grabbing the headlines for the most part, are often the bomb throwers. They're the nihilists. They're those who just, they don't, as long as they get their spot on Fox News or wherever else, they could care less, uh, seemingly, about where the rest of the country is headed. And that attitude, you you know, is is not going to get us very far. Wow. Well, thank you for the reminder, the intentions, and I do think it's it's a fairly scary, scary contemplation and warning um, to us as to needing to get together, needing to figure out how to go forward with a leader of some kind um, that is somewhat consensually based so that we can and, figure out our priorities. And you know I'm chomping at the bit to get in just a little segment on Please. one other thing. Can Please. we do that? Yes, Maybe absolutely. Do that? We do have some extra time. We we haven't okay. hit our hour. Not that we have to, but we do have some more yeah. time. Well, you know, in the week's news, the civil trial yes. against Trump is continuing. It is. And, it just, and this has to deal with whether he has overvalued his assets in order to gain treatment, which is unfair. And the judgment has already been made in the case that he has, in fact, done so. Correct. That the he arguments has made, being he made now defrauded. have to do with, right, what is the extent of it? Can it result, you know, can we do any, do we take away his license? Do we give him a $250 million fine? Whatever. So that is going on. And one of the fascinating things is, speaking to people who grab headlines, Yes. Uh, the the trial has continued, but it's gotten a lot less publicity because Donald Trump has not appeared at the uh, during the trial. Well, he did but, at the very beginning, and no, then that's what I'm saying. Has Since had a he left, in other words, the first week he mm-hmm. appeared, this week he has not. The trial is continuing, but it hasn't been in the headlines because he hasn't been there. Right. But so that trial is continuing. But I think the most fascinating development that has happened in the last week is that Trump's attorneys have filed a 42-page, if I remember, 32, 42-page brief uh, in the case involving uh, Jack Smith's case involving election interference. And they're relying on a case that's known as, um, I always always reverse, yeah, Nixon versus Fitzgerald from 1980. 1982. And this case had to do with, well, had to do with presidential immunity. Right. In the case, President Nixon had, there was a member of the Air Force um, support sort of staff who had testified against procurement policies, embarrassed the administration, 
Nixon reorganized the department and just happened to fire him as a result of that. Uh, and he sued, saying that, you know, this was malicious. Uh, it wasn't fair to him. And essentially, the courts sort of acknowledge, yeah, it's, it looks sort of like dirty pool, but the president has the right to hire and fire. The Constitution gives him that power. Uh, anytime he is acting within the, and there's a specific term which is probably going to elude me right now. Um, anyway, within the outer ambit of his responsibility, we're going to give him immunity. By the way, we do the same thing for judges. Sure. Uh, judges are going to make bad decisions from time to time. If you question the motive of every judge for every decision, uh, judge, no, nobody would want to take the job. Right. Now, so the president has his lawyers have filed this brief, which essentially say that his calls to Georgia and to Arizona, his thinking about appointing a new attorney general, all of these are related to the election. If the president has any interest in anything, if his duties encompass anything, surely it has to do with the electoral process in the United States. Now, the problem, of course, is <laughs> your power to facilitate the election may be quite different from your responsibility to or or your ability to try to try to thwart a con uh, an election. Right. Which the is the, the interference. But I found the brief to be. It, it's a respectful brief, which you can't always say of, of Trump. You know, one of the problems in the civil case is, as we discussed, I believe, two weeks ago, you know, his attorneys have been fined for reintroducing evidence, reintroducing arguments that the judge has already shot down. Right. He finally got sick of it and said, this, this is enough. Um, but the brief is very respectful. It, it, it relies very heavily on this one case. And one of the problems with it is that case is a civil case. Uh, it's not a criminal case. And U.S. versus Nixon, which is the case involving whether Nixon had to release his tapes to Congress, right. the court seemed to give much greater weight to criminal prosecutions than it would ordinary civil cases. And Jack and so, Smith's is a criminal case. That That's right. The, the electorate, well, this one is. Now, I'm not sure. Yes. Right. right. The electoral, one the one happening right interference. now. Mm -hmm. that, that's right. This this would be a criminal case. And so Fitzgerald is not directly on target. But but it does raise I, mean, I think that part of the argument that I think might be the strongest is the argument that deals with whether Trump had the certainly had the ability to fire an attorney general. Sure. Now, and he certainly has the the authority to nominate somebody in that person's place. And we don't typically say, well, he's nominating him because he's a party hack or he's nominating him because he's a personal friend. And I think I think that may be a place where the court would say, yeah, he seems to have been, you know, they might be able to use it as part of a larger picture. He engaged in a conspiracy that's worth the election, and this is an indication. But you might be able to say, well, that is so, the power to hire and fire is so clearly within the president's line of responsibility that it certainly falls within the outer sphere. Mm. So maybe that part of the charge, at least, 
you would not be able to use as evidence. Right. And in my mind, it, you know, especially from the, the attorney side of it, I agree. The brief seems to be much better than, than most of the legal opinions and, and appeals and discussions that his team has had in other cases, especially the, the civil trial in New York. But the question to me that will be the focus is how far does that extend? If right. it's the and ability to hire and fire, okay, well, maybe we get this one piece, but how much larger right. of this conspiracy, this this attempt yeah. to overthrow I think it's would like it be? It, if, if it has any weight, it would chip away at a couple of the pigs rather than the whole thing. Right. But you, your viewers do need to understand the two things to, to, to discuss here. And I'll forget the second one, <laughs> but one of them, one of them is that this this will not prevent him, I believe, from state prosecution, right? Because the, and you can't also be pardoned for state, but it also would not affect anything that he had done after he left office. Mm. So it probably will not touch the case that Jack Smith has brought in Florida about the. Uh, maintaining uh, top secret, if if he did, you know, maintaining the government and records, to up, right, top secret documents. So it doesn't mean the president would go free, but it might, it might, it might weaken part of the case that deals with electoral interference. And you know, there's a similar First Amendment issue here, which is, you know, what the president said. Many of us would regard as reckless, but. Was it the cause of imminent? Did he have cause to know that it would bring about imminent lawless action? Sure. That's at least something that could be discussed, you know. And we we'd have to inquire a little bit more into it. But it's still it's still fascinating developments, and you know we need to remember. And and the other thing, of course, that happened this week is that Sidney Powell had made an attempt. Uh, Powell and Shesborough, I believe, are the two that are going forward. On the 23rd, uh, very, right. very soon now. Right, coming up. And she had she had made a motion to dismiss her case, uh, and it has not been dismissed. So there's, you know, there's still a lot of action here, and uh, it may be that what we'll talk about for the next several weeks is Israel. Right, um, yeah, I mean, it depends on, on what the legal issues are that are most prominent. And I, I do think at least in, you know, within 11, 12 days, whatever it becomes, that trial will become a focus, as will, I expect, this New York fraud case to continue. Um, right. I also, I, I think it's worth mentioning that we have a defendant who's already turned in the Georgia we case. We do, in the Georgia case. And it, and it appears as though... The, the prosecutor is fairly, and, you know, we talked earlier about how are you going to have a case with 19 defendants? Right. I believe it's 19 or 21, whatever it is. Well, two of them we know are going to be done early. And one's pled guilty. Right. And, and to some extent, I think you have, now it's not a criminal case, but you have something similar in this fraud case right now. Yes. It appears that at least, you know, a couple people have given testimony that seems adverse to, to President Trump, former President Trump. And, you know, that would cert it would certainly make it easier for the prosecution if you had five or six people who uh, made, uh, made, made a plea bargain. Now, as you know, from working with juries, uh, uh, 
defendant can bring up the fact that person testifying against them uh, has been given Made a sweetie deal. deal. Um, yes. So it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you would have a conviction, but certainly it'd be a lot easier if you had several, and, and, and we have at least one now who said, yes, uh, I engaged in fraud. Um, yeah. I knew what I was doing and I shouldn't have done it. It's going to be interesting. There are so many legal topics, so many legal issues going on within our own country, across the world that are that's affecting us and them. And let's stay tuned, everybody. If you you know want to make sure that you stay tuned and actually get shown our next video, hit like, hit subscribe on our channel so that it does come up for you so you can see what's happening next in the world and our take on it. Um, that also gets our viewership to others who might be interested. So like, subscribe, comment. Um, anything that you would like to actually hear uh, our nice. take on. Yes, please be nice. <laughs> it's always better. Um, we know this, you know, it's a legal show, but politics becomes a part of how we, you know, what we talk about. And, and you know, we do get comments of, you know, yay for Trump, boo for Trump. Um, you know, what we're trying to focus on is not a political part party controversy, um, but how to interpret it legally, how to understand what's happening, those takes are what we're doing. So if you have comments on that, we'd love to hear them um, and hope that you're getting something out of it. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. This is the week of Friday the 13th um, of October. So we're getting closer to Halloween. We're going to take a you know continued close look as to what's happening in the House, in Israel, on the Trump cases and trials, and we will keep you updated. Thank you for watching. Dr. Vile, thank you so much for your continued insight, especially on the Constitution part of it and how that's relating to Congress. And, and may I comment here, when we get please. to Halloween, maybe we can talk about the spirit of the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we very well can. So uh, get, comment, let us know if that's what you would like to, to see. But there is always that spirit lurking in the background. Um, thanks, everybody. I'm Virginia Tarani with Tarani Law, LLC. Um, Dr. Vile is joining us from Middle Tennessee State University, and we will catch you next time on The Legal Weekly Wine.